we pray now that in this time where we hear the word that you would bring glory to your name for your name's sake. Lord, speak to us. Help us to see from your word what it is that you are communicating to us today. Here from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Lord, help us to, to go beyond what we call the Western American kind of Christianity. But help us to see what it means to truly follow you. And what we should expect in, in a world that is not our home. That we have been a, a people that you, by your goodness, have called us. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe on me, help me bring to my attention all of that which you would want me to echo here today. All of Jesus, none of me. You be glorified in all of what we do and say. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand to your feet and have your Bible in front of you. Turn to Acts chapter 12. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, you want to use that, uh, turn to page 1094. And just a few verses here that we're going to read. And we're going to get in and get communion and try to get you guys out of here by noon. That's my, my hope in the Lord today. Here we go, Acts chapter 12. And it says, And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison and delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You may be seated. It's in the book of Daniel. Um, for those of you visiting with us for the first time, um, we use a term, a couple of terms here called big God theology, sovereign God theology which basically means God rules and reigns throughout the universe over everything in the universe. There's no one or any person or anything that's above him or around him. And in the book of Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it says that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus um, constantly reminded his followers, uh, the apostles who were first disciples, and to all of us who would follow him, Jesus constantly reminded them. We see in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. My sermon here today is called Political Leaders, the Threat of Persecution and Prayer. And you see Jesus is saying here, hey, um, don't let this alarm you that you will go before governors, men of high position in leadership and governments all across this world. Don't let that alarm you, disciples who follow me. Verse 21 in, 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 in Matthew, he says, and brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, those who follow me, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus, Gospel of John, chapter 15, similar words, verse 18 and 20. He says, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, which means if you think like the world, you agree with the world on their perspective on gender and sexuality, Jesus said the world would, would love you as its own. Hollywood would accept you. You'll get, a, you'll, get a, you'll get good jobs. You'll get promotions. Jesus says the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, you choose to walk with me, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, Jesus says. Verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they Kept my word, they will also keep yours, Jesus says. Brothers and sisters here this morning, you need to know this. Almost in every case where the people of God have been severely persecuted and killed down through the ages of time, it has always been at the orders of kings and queens and governors and political leaders. It was Pharaoh in Egypt, who was a king, called himself a god, who ordered the killing of boys before Moses was born. And it was Haman, a leader in the Persian Empire, who conspired to kill all the Jews. See that in the book of Esther. It was King Saul, First king of, over Israel. He was a king. And Saul himself slaughtered 85 priests of the Lord. And all the people of Nob where the priests lived and where they resided. He killed the men. He killed the women. He killed the children. 
excuse me, this is in the Bible. He even killed the baby. He also killed the cow, so there's no beef. And he killed the donkey, couldn't ride, had to walk. And he killed all the sheep. You say, Pastor, where is that? When you get home, you can read it, 1 Samuel 23. It's a hard one to swallow. You know, he killed the babies. I said, we got a lot of babies here. King Saul was a king, and he became deranged. It was King Nebuchadnezzar who commanded everyone to worship the golden image. If not, they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. It was King Herod the Great who gave the orders to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years and old and under. Why? Because he was trying to kill and find and locate the baby Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. All governors, all kings, political leaders. And so here in our text today, in Acts chapter 12, Dr. Luke records for us a political leader who is under the providence and sovereignty of God. God knows what he's going to do. He's very much aware of Herod the king is what he's called. He's Herod Agrippa I. His original name is Marcus Julius Agrippa, and he lived from 10 B.C. to 44 A.D. And he was king of the Jews. He was the grandson, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus. So as you can see, he's in this family um, they got a thing for their politics and trying to kill God's people. And this King Agrippa here, the first, um, he was the brother of Herodias. He, she was the um, wife, and she was the one who was responsible for the John the Baptist's death, as you can read in Mark chapter 6, Matthew 15. Remember the girl danced in front of the king, and he was so captivated. He was like over there in Atlanta, like in a club, and he matched the city, and she danced. And so as I said, there's nothing new under the sun. And whatever kind of dance she did, she's like, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. The wife went and told the door, said, hey, you know, John the Baptist has been speaking about me and him sleeping together because, you know, I was married to his brother. So John the Baptist would say, hey, man, you're committing adultery. You don't supposed to be married to your brother's wife. So she didn't like that. She said, that's for John the Baptist here. And she put that dance on him. And whatever he did, he was, he was totally captivated. Because <laughs> he was in front of all of his own boys. He put his word out there. And John the Baptist's head was cut off and brought to her on a platter. Could you imagine that? All by our king. Well, Herod Agrippa I was king over Israel, but in many ways he was more than just a puppet under the Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor at this time in Rome. You know, you hear people say, man, the Bible was written by somebody. It's not all true. You know, people have no problem believing in the Roman emperors, and Nero, and 
Claudius, they're in history, but they have a hard time believing about all this Jesus stuff. And last week we talked about how Agabus, he prophesied that a famine was coming in the world, but he was under the reign of Claudius. Claudius, you can see, you go back in history, he lived. But whether Jesus really, did he really live? Yes! People who lived during that time, they saw him, heard of him. And so we can see these people were real. So there's Emperor Claudius, there's King Agrippa I. Well, King Agrippa, he sought the popularity of the Jewish people by pretending to be a Jewish convert. He publicly kept the Jewish law and feasts, seeking the support and loyalty of the people, the Jewish people. And this was the very motivation that moved King Herod Agrippa against the church. The Bible says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So this was his motivation. People say, leave politics out of the pulpit. But you can easily see here from Dr. Luke that he speaks about politics front and center and how it intersects with Christianity. I didn't ask him to put in there about a king who's a political leader. Did he get voted in? I don't think so. They didn't vote him in in those days. People say, leave it out of the pulpit. Well, somebody should write Dr. Luke. Hey, Luke, why are you putting political people in the Bible? Because he's there. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see that. Politics and political leaders have been used by the kingdom of darkness since the fall of Adam in the garden. Put here in my, in my notes to encourage you, Christians must be very careful and wise with political leaders. Not to give too much of their allegiance to them. Not to put your hope in them. They're there. Romans 13 talks about All government authority exists because of God, and they're here to have a purpose to play, but we got to be wise with it. But we can see here from the text that Herod, that he wanted the favor of the Jews. And many of the Jewish leaders were still holding to the religion of Judaism, and many Jews didn't like the evangelistic fervor of the Christians at this time. Because Christians, the ideal of of reaching out to the whole world and especially reaching out to the Gentiles, that made um, those Jews who were holding on to Judaism very angry. They didn't like that at all. So they were like, man, this Christianity about bringing in the Gentiles and having Gentiles have the same equal value was unheard of in those Jewish minds. And so over time, deep animosity towards the church had built up over time. It was just building up over these 14 years about this time in in the chronological chronology of where we are in the timeline here in the text from the time that Jesus left in Acts 1-8 when he ascended. And so Herod, being a wise political leader, 
he seized this moment and he launched a government attack against the church and against Christians throughout Jerusalem and all around those particular towns and cities. The word of God, Luke tells us that he took one of the apostles, one of the main leaders in Jerusalem, church, and you read it right, and he beheaded him with the sword. His neck was cut off. James was the brother of Apostle John. Jesus referred to them as sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen. Remember when Jesus called them Peter, James, and John. Some would say they were the closest comrades to Jesus. When Jesus went up Mount Transfiguration, it was those three. He didn't bring all the apostles up. But he brought those three, Peter, James, and John. And we see that this political leader gave an order to cut his neck off. Let me slow it down here and turn a corner. I want to bring it into our world. A lot of what we call Christianity today here in America is not the same Christianity that the apostles had. Nor Christians in the first century. Or Christians around the world like those who are living in China, Afghanistan, and places in the Middle East. To be a Christian in the Middle East, to say you want to follow Jesus, I want you to think about this. Here today, sitting here in Fairfield. You want, you, just having to be born there and you want to sing like we were singing this morning. I want to be where you are. Peace is where you are. Joy is where you are. Love is where you are. It literally means death. And even as we're sitting here with, with heat and air and with all the amenities, most of the Christians around the world are suffering all sorts of persecution just to help be able to, to, to say the name Jesus. And Jesus told us from the very beginning, we're going to be hated in this world. It means death for others in China. They got to call it underground. They can't go out publicly and come into a public place and just start singing with, with a band and keyboard player and, and all of the signs and stuff up. Can't do that. Can't just put up Urban Hope Community Church in China. Those political leaders there are totally opposed to this message of Jesus in the good news. Christians, the apostles taught and lived First century and those in China, it's not a Christianity that means you get a new car because you're a Christian. You get a, a new house. You get a, a new promotion in your job. It's not a Joe Osteen, Michael Todd Christianity kind of life. Or better yet, one of your favorite prosperity preachers of health and wealth, life of ease. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. 
have this book here, Fox's book of martyrs. And one of the things the Lord had me do early on to kind of help me stay uncontaminated with the Western Christianity, because it's, it's just hard to, it's just so wealth and health and ease and just you, you, like a smorgasbord of Christianity, you get to pick and choose what kind of church you want to go to. Man, you don't get to pick and choose that in China or in Afghanistan or in the Middle East. You get to do that in America. You get to see which church you're going to go to. And so for me, God just had me start reading books outside of the Western world because, man, you just read Western books. Man, you, 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 you just like, you have a Christianity that's totally foreign to the Bible. So reading books like this just kind of help you. It's called Fox's Book of Martin. It just tells you all the people that have been killed from A.D. 33 all the way up to today. Still happening. And he's just like, man, same God, same creator, same Lord, same Jesus who's sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning with all the angels worshiping him day and night. And, and it's just like, man, God, you know, I'm really living the Christianity that you preached in the Bible because I didn't ask to be born in America. That's kind of one of the reasons why I think I ended up going to the urban ministry because wherever it was, I said, well, I didn't have a lot of money to go be a missionary abroad. Well, Lord, send me to the hard places. So at least I can be there. I can get as close as I can to living out a Christianity that's not about comfort and ease. Well, anyway, let me back to this book. So in this book, it starts out with Stephen. Remember him? He was killed first. He was the first Christian martyr. And then it goes to James the Great, which is what we're talking about, who got killed in here by uh, Herod the Great, Agrippa. And then let me read you a few excerpts from this book. It says, arrests, beatings, and intimidation had become common. A group of believers were randomly rounded up and carted off to Herod's dungeon. Among them happened to be one of the apostles, James. The event seemed like little more than the usual inconvenient harassment that the Roman leaders felt obligated to perform at the insistence of certain Jewish leaders who seemed obsessed with the followers of Jesus. But things took a sudden turn when James was hauled out without fanfare and, sum and summarily executed by the sword. The church in Jerusalem was stunned. Their opponents were elated. James' death turned out to be a political experiment on Herod's part. He must have been sick and tired of the bickering in his court over the Christ followers, who seemed to be spreading like an infection. They didn't do anything wrong except provoke extreme hatred from others. But when the old politician saw the excitement response to James' death among his political allies, Herod decided he could afford to eliminate a few more of these Christians. So his attempt to kill Peter failed, which we'll get to next week. And before he could devise a further plan, he was distracted by a crisis in another part of his kingdom. And we can see Christians were under the rule of Herod the Agrippa, he was having a good old time. And he was pleasing his allies, the Jews. Last week, I made a comment, and I got into the comment. I didn't finish my thought, and the Holy Spirit took me in a different way. 
So I want to come back to it. And I made a comment about California. And Job said, man, Pastor Hart, you started out with California, but then you left us out there. You never came back to it. Well, Job, I'm coming back today. So I didn't finish my thought on it. I said, you no, know, I have issues with California, but what I was trying to say, California was like an Antioch. So God said, no, you don't want to tell Christians not to go to Antioch, no, or California. So, you know, I can do my stuff there as well. But, but here's what I was trying to say about California. California, as, as one of the states in our union, America, is probably the most liberal state in that sense. And based on all historians, Whatever happens in California as it relates to almost anti-Christian um, legislation and all of the above, it starts there. And then it moves its way across the country. Because why? Because California have what? What do they have that we all get influenced by? Hollywood. All of the porn comes from California that produce. So you're struggling with porn? Blame California. Because <laughs> that's where it's coming from. So California is just, it's just a state that is really has just lost its way. And so, and, and, they just, and they just push it. Well, and what I was trying to say about California was really about that. And so I'm going to make a comment uh, about this. There's a guy who wrote a book called The Eighth Church, The Shining Church of California. And this is what he talks about. He, he wrote this book about California. He says, conservatives are fleeing California in droves. Because if you're in California and you got kids, y'all have little kids, and they go to any public school, they're going to be taught all of the stuff that we as Christians don't believe in. So your little girl goes to school, doesn't matter if you live in a good neighborhood or bad neighborhood, they're going to be taught two mommies, two daddies, there is no gender and all of the above. The whole state and everyone is pushing it. That's California. Now, Alabama, we still have a lot of conservative Christians here. So we're not as far gone as California is. But conservatives are fleeing California in droves, this pastor says. He said, last year, so many left for red states like Idaho, Texas, and Florida that the Golden State lost a congregation, uh, uh, a Congress seat. But Pastor Chris Henry thinks it would be a mistake for evangelicals who dislike the direction of the state and its politics to join the exodus and head to the Bible Belt. That's why he wrote the eighth church, the shining church of California. Pastor Henry's message is that the Christians should not give up on one of the most beautiful states in the USA, but how they can change hearts with the timely message of salvation and redemption found in the scriptures. So that's what I was trying to say about California. It's, you know, if I'd have went out there years ago, I probably would have got sucked up in it. But if I went there now, I think I'm built for it now. I really do. I think I would be able to navigate the culture and it probably would be an easier pastor in there than it is in the Bible Belt. Because here in the Bible Belt, you've got a lot of people who have the name of Christianity on them, but we know they're not Christians. But at least in California, you're not going to even play around with it. So you're going to be more legitimate, authentic Christian. Because everybody in Fairfield, including the game banker, says he's a Christian and he's on his way to the pearly gates. That's part of the problem living here in, in this Bible Belt. Everyone thinks they're a Christian. 
but they're doing all the stuff that Christians should not do. Sexing it up, messing around, not in church, don't give money, don't pray, don't tithe, don't read the Bible. But they are Christian. Based on what? See, and that's the problem. Well, because I'm an Alabama and Auburn fan. That's probably why they say they're Christian. <laughs> so, here we see. Christianity is an upside-down kingdom message. When Jesus says, they hated me and will hate you. And you got to get used to that. Um, I think, as based on the numbers, as um, Christianity is waning, as quoted what most are saying, and less and less millennials believe in it, especially Gen Z's, and I don't know what's coming afterwards. And so you can imagine um, Christianity is becoming uh, more and more and less and less in America. So, which means I think the, um, and you can, and someone's saying you can sense the antagonism, the animosity that people are starting to have towards Christianity. Um, because if you're holding to the scriptures on certain things, like especially in your sexuality, and so I think that's only going to increase more and more. So, so we need to prepare for it. So, transitioning. So, how do Christians respond to persecution? How do we respond? Well, we see that Herod the Great is killing. Uh, he killed one of the main leaders in Jerusalem, Apostle James. I mean, that would be like me getting killed, persecuted. Just me one day, and all the other, like, Pastor Hardy got killed for his faith. So, this is a really big moment in the church. And now then he only kills James, and then he goes and arrests Peter. So these are not just Johnny-come-lately people. So, so you can imagine the, the kind of fear and timidity that's coming over the church. So how do the Christians respond to it? So it says that um, he seized Peter, he put him in prison, and he was delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, meaning he had about 16 soldiers, one on one each side, two outside, and they did it on four shifts. So man, Peter was, they put this guy, they didn't want no chance that he was going to escape. One on both sides and two on the outside. They did it in shifts, four, four, four blocks. And it says, um, he was going to kill Peter. That's his plan. I'm going to get you, but I can't do it during the Passover week. That's the holy week of, in, in Jewish culture, so I can't do that. I can't do it in that week, so I'm going to wait, and then I'm going to kill him afterwards. And then look what it says in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. God's people, in the face of persecution, we pray. It wasn't made by the politicians, those, it says by the people of God, the church. They made earnest prayer. This Greek word here, earnest, means um, um, ekonos. It means to stretch out, pertaining to an unceasing activity, normally involving a degree of intensity or perseverance without ceasing, continuously, constantly. These Christians went on their knees, not social media. They went on their knees praying. 
Peter's locked up. He's, this, is, uh, one of, this is James has already been murdered, and other Christians are being killed. And so they went into prayer mode for Peter. So, no, Lord, we, we need Peter. We need leadership. And so Apostle James has been killed, and so the Christians went into prayer in this time of persecution. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18 says, rejoice always. Why do we rejoice? Because God is sovereign in all things, in all situations. So we rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what do we do when people hate us and when they persecute us? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, 43 to 45, he says, you have heard it when it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then Paul comes on and he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he said, first of all, then I urge you that supplications and with prayers and with intercessions and with thanksgiving, it should be made for all people. And then Paul adds this to it. Pray for those kings, those queens, those governors, those leaders. You pray for Putin. You pray for the Chinese leaders, even though they're evil, they're wicked. But Paul said, pray for them, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for them who persecute you. Verse 45, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What is Jesus trying to tell us? Loving our enemies, praying for them who persecute us. And then he ends this by saying, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. And you say, Pastor, I'm not perfect. And I'll say, I add on with you. I'm not neither. Talk to Sandy. She would tell you. I'm not perfect. But he says, I want you to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you know what, saints? God knows that we are not perfect. But God says in his word in 1 Peter 2.9, he knows that we're not perfect, but he says, but you are a chosen generation, that you are a royal priesthood in a holy nation. I love the King James Version. He says, you are a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of Egypt, out of darkness. And look what it says, out of darkness into his marvelous light, promised land, which in time past, look what it says, which in times past, all of us, he says, we were not a people. How can you love tax collectors? Because at one time you were a tax collector. You were the enemy of God. You were the sinner. We all were. He says, you are not a people, but you are now the people of God. 
which you have now obtained, what? His mercy. But now you have obtained this mercy. And then I transition to the funeral. Well, how do we Christians live as forgiveness people? All of us, before God saved us out of Egypt, we were worse than tax collectors. A tax collector is basically in the New Testament, the scum of the earth, the worst you can get. That's what we all were. But God chose us. He called us out. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, as we come to the Lord's table, he says, I don't ever want you to understand. He says, be perfect as your father is perfect in heaven. And Jesus says, I know y'all not going to be perfect. But I always will remind you who was the perfect one. He said, I know you're not going to be perfect in your marriage. You're going to raise your voice one day, and then the next day you'll be quiet as a mouse. And you'll say, honey, forgive me for raising my voice. And then the two days later, arguing over the children, and you start arguing again. And he's like, man, I can't be perfect, Pastor. That's right. You can't be. He's perfect. I'm not. But he reminds us of that reality that he was perfect. And so you and I come to the table to be reminded that in all of our imperfections and all of our failures and our falling down, that he forgives us. He loves us. He's given us great mercy. And he comes to say to the table, come, I know you're not perfect, but I'm perfect in righteousness. I'm perfect in love. I'm perfect in holiness. And so Paul says, come to the table. Verse 23, says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. He says, my body was broken for you. He says, when you take this bread, these elements that we're about to take, he says, you do this in remembrance of me, what I've done. I'm the one who came, who was perfect. I had no sin. I had no guile. I had no evil. I had no maliciousness in my heart. And I became sin for you, brothers and sisters, so that in all of your imperfections, you can be made righteous through what I have accomplished on the cross. And so that's why we can love our enemies. Because we know that it wasn't for God's mercy, we would still be the tax collector. That's why we can love those kings and queens who persecute us. Because we know until God opened their eyes like he did us, they can't see. But Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And then the Bible says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. It's my, it's my vow of oath. That I'm making with you in my blood. That I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. Never going to abandon you. He says, do this as often as you drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. That I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to let you go. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elders, you can come forth. And so, well, who should come to this table? We do this every time, and we're trying to do a better job. I started out by saying... Sometimes in the Western Christianity, you got a lot of what I call um, people who are not Christians, but they say they are, but they're not. How do you know you're a true Christian here tonight, today? I said tonight, today. How do you really know that? Let me tell you how. Do you feel convicted of your sin? 
I'm not saying you don't sin. Do you feel conviction over it? Like you go to Publix and you steal a, a Snicker bar. Do you get in your car? Yeah, I stole it. Or do you say, yeah, you know what? I feel really bad. You have conviction about your sin. It's a good chance the Holy Spirit is in you. Because what about Christians who are not Christians? They don't have no convictions about anything. They have nothing. They don't, there's no, there's no, there's no sorrowfulness about their sin and what they do. And so, but if you're a true Christian, and though you may be struggling, and you may not be a member of Urban Hope, then this table is for you. But you're saying, Pastor, I'm in process. I don't know if I believe this yet. I want to. And I want to meet with one of the elders or whoever they may be. And I'm struggling with that yet. I can't say definitively I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Then I would say to you, if you don't really believe that, then refrain from coming to the table today. Because the Bible says if you come and you don't believe, then you bring judgment and damnation on yourself. And the elders, we don't want that to happen to you. And so we refrain from that. Well, let me pray for the elements here, and then I'm going to hand out to the elders, and then whoever's going to come and uh, give the directions. Father, we ask that you bless um, this bread that symbolizes your body, and this cup of juice that symbolizes your, your blood covenant that you made with us by dying for us. We ask, Lord, right now that as we partake of these elements, Lord, that you would nurture our hearts in true faith, that we would grow to understand what it is that you've done for us, that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. That we, at one time, we were not a people. We were rebellious. We were the tax collectors. Lord, you've called us to be a peculiar people, meaning we live totally contrary to the world. The world hates their enemies, but we are called to love our enemies, to bless the King Herod, to ask for you to save them and all these wicked men and women who are in politics around our world and our country. Lord, that's what you, who could do that? Only except a God of mercy and a God of grace. Bless us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.